This show is sponsored by Saigon Cribs. If you're coming to Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, short-term or long-term, and need a place to live, check out saigoncribs.com or go to their Facebook page. I'm actually going to be working with them, so if you go to citizen44.com, you can go ahead and send me a message, and I'll help you with that relocation process. That's saigoncribs.com or Facebook, Saigon Cribs. You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Aronsberg, live from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Hey, Dad. Hey, what's happening? Just got home a little bit ago, had some dinner with Lee and Ann at a fantastic vegan restaurant. Oh. What's going on in Encino, California this morning? Nothing. I went to movies yesterday with cousin Steve and Pat. We saw The Invisible Man. How was that? It was good. It was uh, tense, but it was fun. On the edge of your seat, kind of exciting tense? Yeah, because everything was anticipation. You don't know when he's going to show up, when he's not going to show up. It was well done. Isn't the original Invisible Man from back in your time? Yes, but it was nothing like that version. Completely different. Okay. So what was the original version? Uh, I don't remember. It's too long ago. Oh, okay. Who's with you? Just Sandy. You want to say hi? Sure. Hi, how are you? Good, Sandala. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. I was just reading your text. Oh, about my dinner? Yeah. When is your knee surgery? You know, I haven't gone to the orthopedic yet. I'm going March 11th, and then I'll know. Oh, it's coming. That's coming up. It's coming. It's coming. How's your mama? Uh, She's good. Everybody's good. Okay. I'm on my way home. Okay. Here's Dad. Love you. Bye. Hi. Hi, Dad. What's the weather over there? The weather's beautiful. It's going to be 81 today. That's so perfect. So other than that, everything's good. What are you going to do today? I'm not sure what I'm going to do today. Okay. Right now, I'm just going to take this and walk home. Okay. Same old, same old. You're going to be on show number 85 with Curtis Smith. Am I on now? Yeah, you're on now, Dad. Curtis? Hey. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you having me. I know you because of Lucky Doug Fergus. Yes. Tell me about that because I've known Doug for about 18 years now. We've been making music together for maybe 15 years of that. And you are a PR slash publicist for the music business. That's right. How did Doug end up working with you? Well, this is the coolest thing. It was so ironic how this all came together. I received something from Doug in the mail. It was a CD. It was called Naked in Public. The album cover was so cookie. It was on a swing. It was fun. I was checking it out, and I was looking under that cover, and I noticed it got produced by Sylvie Massey, who I respect totally. I gave him a call, and he was looking for somebody to help him promote his record. I had listened to it, and it was kind of like an adult comedy rock slash something for kids. I thought was really cool and innovative. And then I noticed that he's from my hometown. 
which is Crestline, California. And he knew a lot of the same people that I knew. So there was a connection there. And uh, we started working together promoting the album Naked in Public. And everything just kind of took off from there. You came down with your family to Ashland, Oregon, and your daughter recorded something with Sylvia Massey at her church slash studio right here in Ashland. Yes. What was that all about? Well, you know, our relationship kind of gathered steam over time, and the Naked in Public record happened to be a favorite of my daughter's when she was around eight years old, and she really liked it and was probably the youngest fan that Lucky Doug had. So they had a connection there, which I thought was really cool. He would send her autograph records and things like that. Well, as she grew older, we found out that she was a soprano opera-type singer. And Doug heard that and really liked her voice and thought there would be a match there on his music. So Doug invited McKenna to sing on a couple of his songs and, if possible, collaborate a little bit or write some material. So they had this kind of a working relationship, so to speak. So Doug invited us up and McKenna recorded with Sylvia on a couple of the songs, which I thought was great. For McKenna, it was wonderful because it was a great studio experience for her. How long have you been in the music business now? I started in the industry back in 1985, 86. I was a studio engineer in college. And then I moved on to become a sound reinforcement guy. And then from there, I got involved in the entertainment side where I was doing bookings for artists and such. And after that, I got involved in scouting and in our rap work. After that, I got into publicity, working at some of the major labels back in 1993, 94. While I was doing that, I was doing my independent PR for independent bands back then as a hobby. I worked at American Recordings as an intern. And from there, I went to Scotty Brothers Records and then from there, I was at Interscope Records for a couple years. From there, I went independent, and I've been working with independent music ever since. What year did you pop into the planet? <laughs> 1965. about growing up in SoCal. And what is the neighborhood that you're from? I'm from the Lake Arrowhead area, Southern California near Big Bear, about 80 miles east of Los Angeles. I travel back and forth between Lake Arrowhead and San Ynez Valley, north of Santa Barbara, where the Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch is, that vicinity, which is where I'm at right now. I'm in a town called Los Olivos. I was up here for the holidays. So what was it like in the 70s? I was growing up in a town called Rialto at the time. And um, the cool thing about it was back then, everything was an orchard. We had orange groves and avocado groves and grapefruit groves and all these different places where kids can just get lost. 
that now has turned into houses, so it's not the same. But back then, it was a lot of fun because there was just so much to do. And then later on, we moved up to Crestline in 1975. And at that time, that was another place to play. For kids, it was awesome because, you know, the mountains and the snow and the seasons and all that. And pretty much stayed there until college. I went to Cal State San Bernardino, just down the bottom of the hill, and fell in love with the studio engineering. I mean, they had an API 1604 board, and I just fell in love with it. <laughs> so I studied that, and then I focused on music, and anything had to do with entertainment. I got my degree in business administration, but my first love was music. Anything had to do with promoting or recording music. in some of the best time of music, as I did. I feel very fortunate about that. But there must have been something that triggered you that made you decide that music was going to be your vocation, what you were going to figure out how to do for the rest of your life. Yes, there was a specific time, and I remember it vividly. I had a teacher named Phil West who was doing a class called Studio Recording. I didn't know what it was. I just knew it sounded cool. So since it was elective, I just tried it. He opened up the control room, we walked up the stairs, and there was the soundboard and all the outboard gear. That hit me like a ton of bricks. Right then I knew I had to be a part of that. So I studied it inside and out. The microphones, the board, the placement of microphones, all of that, I just got into it. And I did that for four years straight. Even though there was no real curriculum for it, I was focused on it. Then I got more involved from that point where I was working with a lot of artists to promote them to their new levels. So it all started there, but the soundboards would did it. In order to get involved in the music business, you've got to jump in with both feet. You can't part-time it. You've got to go 100% at it. And so I was working at the time, your nine to five typical job, and there was a point in time where I just had a gut check and I told myself, you're going to quit your job and you're going to figure it out. So I did, I quit, got a job in LA at the time, working for $6 an hour part-time and I would drive 80 miles just to be in the environment. And I allowed myself to find opportunities to get my foot in the door here and there, whatever it would take. It took a lot of sleeping on floors and hanging out in studios, but that's what it took. So I just committed full on to that kind of lifestyle. And that's how things moved forward for me. What was your first major break? My break, in my opinion at the time, was getting my first internship at American Records. It was very difficult to get an internship at a major label unless you were getting college credit. Well, I had already graduated college, so it was really hard to get your foot in the door at that point. But I did catch a break at American. They were looking for somebody that didn't need college credit. So that was my first big break. What was your job there? I was basically folding press releases for the publicist 
and would get mailers out or get CDs mailed or whatever it took. Whatever they needed, I was there to help. And to be honest, man, it was one of the funnest times of my life because I was just so into it. I knew that we were getting somewhere with it, and I was involved with some really cool artists. I was dealing with the art campaigns for John Cash, the Hypnotics, Danzig, Sir Mix-a-Lot. And it was a lot of fun because the people around me would come up together. Some of them are still in the business with me, and this is really cool. You know, I learned from the best, too, I gotta say. The publicists that I was under, they were top-notch. Well, the hardest part about getting into L.A. is finding a place to live. I just kind of fell in opportunities. I was house-sitting for celebrities. I was subletting apartments for other people that needed someone to fill a room space. And I found little part-time jobs here and there. And because it's so expensive, you have to find opportunities to get in there. I had a friend who I knew in college that had moved on to do film work that knew of a celebrity that needed somebody to house-sit for them during the winter months. So I left my apartment and moved into Hollywood on that chance that I would find a place before I got bounced out of the place that I was out sitting for. So I was there for about a month, and so that whole month I was looking for a place to live. And within the month, I found a place to submit. This one celebrity, her name was Mary Jackson. She was about 85 years old, and she was known as one of the Baldwin sisters in the Waltons, the series, the Waltons. And the Baldwin sisters were the two sisters that lived above the Waltons, and they had a moonshining still. There was a nice sister, and there was a mean sister. And Mary Jackson was the mean sister. The thing about Mary Jackson was so cool is that she was an ear. She gave me some great advice. Hang in there, do your work, do what you got to do, stay humble. It was great, because you knew you were going to have to work for whatever you got. How did your parents feel about you taking off in the direction of trying to make it in the music industry? Oh, that's a really good question because in the beginning I was working for my parents' company and uh, they always knew that I was involved heavily in that. And they knew eventually I was going to take that path. They just didn't know when. But when I did take it, they were pretty confident that I was going to be all right because they knew that I had to drive. So they were pretty supportive of it at the time. What did your dad do for a living back then? He owned an insulation company. He basically insulated homes and did roofing. He was like a general roofing contractor. And they focused on insulation. And your mom? My mom was a bookkeeper for my dad's business. My brother installed the insulation. He was the CEO. And I came in as a marketing person for him to help him get some exposure. But he also knew that wasn't my line of work, so... I eventually tapered off and moved into a different direction. So you're at American Recordings, you're living the dream, you have your first real gig. Where do you go from there? I was there about nine months. It's all voluntary, you're working for free, but you're learning. What happened was my boss at the time was leading for a job at AM Records, so there was an open position. And he says, You should interview for it. I said, Definitely. So I went ahead and I interviewed with Heidi Robinson Fitzgerald, who's one of the top publicists in the music business today. All I wanted was the interview. I didn't think I'd have a shot. And uh, it turned out that there was a person that was more qualified than I was. 
but she said I could use it as a reference. So I started looking around for other work, and Buddy Brothers Records got a hold of me. The publicist there was Cheryl Northrup, and she had hired me as a part-time paid intern. I worked with a number of artists. James Brown was one of them. Weird Al Yankovic. There was an artist that we broke named Skilo. He had a song called I Wish. And then what happened was they were going to have to downsize, so I was going to get let go. I was looking for work at that point, and I got a call from Interscope Records. And they called me, and uh, I went to go work for them in 1995, and I was there for a couple of years. I got there October of 95, and I was there right when the heyday hit. The first band I started working on was No Doubt, and the first song that broke was Just a Girl. What were your job responsibilities at Interscope? At Interscope, I was the assistant to my boss, Jenny Body, and my job was to make her life easier. That was basically it. The department head was Lori Earl, who I respect immensely. She's a wonderful person, just like Jenny is, and I just did what they needed. Followed their lead and learned from them. The time from 95 to 97 was literally the heyday for Deathrow Records and Interscope Records. And a lot of the bands that were broken were during that time. No Doubt was one of them. Marilyn Manson's Antichrist Superstar was a big one. That was Jenny and I. Brian Setzer, I was involved with Deathrow Records, and that would be Tupac, Snoop Dogg, Trey. And then some of the other bands I worked with, Primus, Helmet, Limp Bizkit, Smash Mouth, quite a few on that level. It was just a golden time, really. I mean, it really was. I always thought that the 90s was a really good time for music from 1993 to, say, 1998. You had a lot of good music coming out. You had Nine Inch Nails, Smashy Pumpkins. Beastie Boys. It was just a really good time for music. I think the 70s was a great time for music just the same, but I really feel fortunate that I was literally involved in the promotion and whatever it took to get those bands to the levels that they're at today and being right in the middle of it. Another thing that was big is setting up travel. I was dealing with management on some levels to make sure that people got into places and then got out of places without any problems. One example would be with No Doubt. I was involved in getting them to Saturday Night Live where they broke the song Don't Speak and getting them in and out. We're talking like 15 to 20 people, flying them into New York and then flying them out from New York to different countries. And the nice thing about it is after they perform that, I think No Doubt's Don't Speak single was number one for like at least 10 weeks on the Billboard top charts. So it was a milestone. So to be a part of that was really cool. There's a number of other experiences that were really cool for me. One of them in particular was Marilyn Manson. If you remember the cover of Rolling Stones, Marilyn Manson, when it was just a safe. What happened there was Manson was breaking, and we were trying to set up an interview with Rolling Stones. The writer at the time, his name was Neil Strauss, and we were trying to get him to Miami. He was supposed to be on a plane, and we could not find him. 
And we knew that if we were going to get him to Miami, it wasn't going to happen. So I got on the phone with a writer at Rolling Stone at the time. His name is Anthony Boza, who actually has a book out right now on Eminem, which is pretty cool. We got to get on the phone. We basically hunted him down. <laughs> it took, I don't know, at least an hour to find him. And we barely got him on the plane. And he ended up going to Miami. Him and Manson did the interview in a jacuzzi. And it was really simple, real quick. A couple months later, the cover came out, and it won awards. That was in uh, 1997. It was genius. I mean, my boss and the person that set it up, they did a wonderful job. And then we would make sure it happened. <laughs> Is he still around? Oh, yeah. I just saw him on TV. He was doing some kind of charitable work for Cindy Lauper, which I thought was pretty cool. But, yeah, he's been putting records out. Yeah, he's on a different label. I know that he was on Roma Vista Records, which is Tom Wally's label. Yeah, he's still out there for sure. All right, Curtis, give me your craziest story of your firsthand experience of working with talent and things didn't go as you thought they were supposed to go. Oh, that's perfect. I got one for you. It sticks in my head like it happened yesterday. It was the Reverend Horton Heat. This is how it went. I was probably in my third month at the label, and I was basically trying to prove myself at Interscope. I was retyping the bio for No Doubt when my boss said, I need you to go pick up the Reverend Horton Heat and take him to a photo shoot. I said, okay. So I got my car, went that way to the, uh, I think it was the Hilton. So I went to go pick him up in my Nissan Maxima. And uh, I show up, they're all dressed up, and they got their instruments and everything, and I'm like, there's no way they're gonna fit. So the Rev comes down, dressed up, ready to go for the photo shoot, but he's not in a great mood. And he sees that I don't have a car to take the instruments, so he's not really that happy about it. So I said, follow me, we'll go to the photo shoot. Well, I had to take a U-turn in traffic on Sunset Boulevard. There was no way around it, and it was so packed that that's what we had to do. So all of a sudden, he took off. He was gone. He went AWOL. And I took up the other two guys to photo shoot, and nobody could find the rest. So my boss said, just go back to the office. Nothing we can do. And as I was getting in my car, the rev showed up in the hotel and he was giving me this look that was, if looks could kill, then I'd be dead twice. <laughs> I got back to the office and he took off. I don't know what happened. So I had to make that long walk to the boss's office to let her know what's going on. Lori is sitting there looking at me like, yeah, tell me what's up. And I already knew she knew what was going on. I just had to say something. So I told her, and uh, she says, welcome to the club, man. That's part of what this is all about. And, I mean, it was just a relief. 
I knew that I was going through something that somebody else had gone through, and I didn't blow it as much as I thought. Lori was awesome with me. I mean, she was great. And the photo shoot went down. It went fine. And once they got the shots, the picture that they used for the general publicity photo of the Reverend Horton Heat was the exact same look that I got when he was pissed at me. And that photo is now circulating everywhere. So every time I see that photo, it reminds me of that time. <laughs> Fast forward, I actually met the Rev at a later date. Super nice guy. We had a lot in common. We talked a lot about roadsters and hot rods and things like that. And uh, that was my craziest situation. What's your next gig after that? Well, I moved on from there when my boss moved to New York. I went to a company called Risk Records. And one of the artists that I worked with at Risk was a band called Jack Off Jill, which is kind of sort of a spinoff of Manson in the way that Jessica, who was the front person for the band, was friends with Manson down in Southern Florida. I was working with them on a record called Sex with Demons and Scars. And Scott Pateski, who is known as Daisy Berkowitz, had left Manson, and he was one of Manson's co-songwriters. He joined Jack Off Jill and was on a record called Covetous Creature that I promoted. After that, they had to lay off people, and I was one of them that was on the short list to get laid off. Right after that, I decided to go full-time with my own PR firm, the Maelstrom PR. I'd done it part-time from 1994 to 1998, and that was my cue to say it's time to go full-time with this because there's so much independent music going on it was important to promote or help promote up-and-coming artists to get to their next level. So I took that path, and I had been doing it ever since. How many artists are you working with currently? Right now i got three artists that I'm working with. There's been a change in the industry, kind of a seismic shift with streaming. Back in the day, technology was nowhere near what it is today. And now we're looking at a lot of artists that are able to do their own work, even though it's not on a major label level, it's still something they feel like can do a DIY level. So the workload has changed. These days, I'm more focused on getting involved with charitable contributions from the major label type artists. There's a lot of artists out there that have charities that people don't know about, and I want to be a part of that, help them promote those but I'm still involved with independent music. Well, Curtis, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you spending the time with me. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. That's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Number 85, done. I want to thank Curtis Smith for coming on. Pretty cool that he and Lucky Doug have that connection. So the three of us now are connected in that cool musical way. If you want to find out more about Curtis Smith, you can find him on Facebook under Curtis Smith Maelstrom Public Relations or Google him. There's all kinds of stories and interesting information about him all over the interweb. I also want to thank my dad for coming on the show. He is actually my first recorded phone call from Ho Chi Minh City to the United States. Great to have him back on the show. It's been too long, and I look forward to having him on many shows in the future. 
on a funny note here, on the Jimmy Kimmel Show, evidently they sent someone out on the street and were asking people if they thought that drinking Corona beer would give them the coronavirus. And a third of the people actually thought that drinking Corona beer would give them the coronavirus. Just another embarrassing fact of the reason why Mark Ahrensberg is now living in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, Vietnam. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. You can hear all the shows on CastBox, iTunes, and Stitcher. Also, check out Citizen44.com and see all the groovy stuff going on there. I appreciate you listening to the show. It's great to do it here from Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. I'm having a great time. I have everything I could possibly imagine. Lots of culture and community and good stuff, food, you know, the whole thing. I want to thank you for all your support, always. Thank you for listening. Next week, we got 80 Bell. 80 Bell from Ashland, my last recorded show coming out of Ashland, Oregon. All right, take care. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Linkley Home a premier hotel apartment centrally located in Ho Chi Minh City, District 1, Vietnam. Clean, comfortable, convenient, super friendly, excellent service. Be sure to tell them Mark sent you and receive a 10% discount. Linkley Home. Check them out on Booking.com. They're rated a 9.1. Linkley Home. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. Yes. Yeah. I am Citizen 44. Go see Phoenix, Oregon the movie. National release March 20th. A real movie with real stories about real people having real experiences. It's really good. Phoenix, Oregon, the movie, March 20th. It'll be in four Lemley theaters around the Los Angeles area. Phoenix, Oregon, the movie.